At Kelly Companies, it is no secret that they believe in the power of people. In an effort to help their Keelians get to know each other a little bit better, they decided to launch the Who Do You Know campaign. The goal was simple. Keelians were encouraged to have a conversation with someone outside of their circle. That's it. These conversations, however, have brought people together and farthered their world-class culture. Shout out to the Keelians who have made an effort to have meaningful conversations with new friends. You can learn more about those conversations, about those amazing friends, by visiting them online at keelycompanies.com. Welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. John is the number one national best-selling author of the book On Fire. He's a world-class inspirational speaker, and he's the host of the Live Inspired Podcast. John interviews extraordinary individuals on their life story so that you can wake up from accidental living and more fully live your life story. Here's your host, John O'Leary. Well, my friends, adversity is much more common than we think. And yet, so is resilience, so is strength, so is tenacity. Dr. Meg Jay, she's going to be our guest today, is a clinical psychologist, and she's also the author of The Defining Decade, along with Superhuman, specializing in adult development and the 20-something demographic in particular. Meg joins us to explain our ability to overcome adversity. Yes, she's talking to you, my friend. The power of becoming a support for others. Again, she's talking to you and the courage to rise above our circumstances and challenges in life. Yeah, again, she's talking to you. Whether you are entering your 20s, that's some of us, or the backside of your 70s, that might be the rest of us, this conversation will empower you and me and the rest of us to face life's uncertainties, its complex challenges with profound hope, with optimism, and with clarity of what we can control, letting go of the things we cannot, and taking the next right step forward in our journeys. You're going to love this episode. It's going to be the kind you will want to have a little pad of paper, maybe a live-inspired writing utensil nearby, favorite sipping beverage. I recommend a little bit of water, maybe a hot tea or coffee, and an open mind and an open heart. Well, I bring on a wonderful friend and a great teacher. Her name is Dr. Meg J. Meg, welcome to Live Inspired with John O'Leary. I'm so glad to be here, John. Thanks for having me. Well, it's an honor. As I sat back reading your books over the last couple of days and weeks leading up to it, and then listening to other podcasts and shows you've been on, I, I feel like I was hanging out with a friend and hanging out with a storyteller. You may be a clinician, you may be a teacher, but you're an awesome storyteller. No, thank you. Thank you. When you meet someone outside of the classroom and outside of a podcast and outside of some morning show and they say, Meg, hmm, what do you do for a living? How do you respond to that? I am a clinical psychologist, but I say I spend a lot of my time writing books or giving talks because I do, like you're pointing out, I think of myself in a lot of ways as, you know, as much of a writer or a teacher as I think of myself as a psychologist. When, when did you know that you were a storyteller? When did you recognize that you had a gift of writing? Now, that was something I always wanted to do. So when I, you know, the things that you say, you know, I know your story has a lot to do with baseball and baseball in the background. And, you know, kids, oh, I want to be a professional baseball player. When I was a kid, my dream was I'm going to be a writer. I don't know that I did much with it when I was little, but I used to pretend that was what I would pretend when I was growing up. I would win little local, you know, South Carolina writing competitions, which was cool. Went to college and I would get A's on papers and professors would read them and write in the corners, you know, you should be published. And I remember thinking, well, how do you do that? Or what does that mean? I mean, that's that's kind of a tough thing for a 20 year old to know. Well, how do I become published? What do I do with that? I'm probably too pragmatic to have just gotten on a bus and ridden to New York and jumped off and figured it out. But I also had a, you know, a real interest in psychology. So I went that route, which makes a lot of sense because I really have always been a nonfiction writer. So I needed something to write about. So if I wasn't going to be a reporter, I probably needed to get a life, have a career, and then have something that I really felt was important to write about. So that's, that's the kind of the path that I took with that. So I didn't write my first book until I was 40. And you know what? I think there's wisdom in that. We'll, we'll come back to that as we really talk about that book. But I think timing 
matters. And mm -hmm. so often people are in such a race to get things done and have more things behind their name that they don't really take the time to learn the lesson of their life. So you went to school, you, you I think you double majored. Is that right? Is that accurate? Yeah. Grad school was clinical psychology and gender studies, but undergrad was psychology and uh, I got a minor in religion. So you, you have all these things going on, this education. What do you, what are you thinking that ultimately it will do for you or what do you want to do with it going forward? I mean, I'm really, I'm a, you know, I'm a born educator. I feel I'm a third generation educator. You know, one of my favorite quotes is uh, education is an intervention. So even though I'm a clinical psychologist, I probably help more people through education than I do through quote therapy. I mean, empirically that's true because I spend, you know, there's only so many hours you can spend per week one-on-one -on -one with somebody. And then you think about the number of people you can reach with your books I'm not doing therapy with those people, but I'm, you know, hopefully providing information um, and stories and perspectives that are helpful to them. So I probably help people more through teaching than I do through, you know, being a psychologist directly. So without hedging on this one, meaning left or right, I'm going to ask you a question. Which do you prefer? Do you prefer being in front of the large classroom, whether it's a, a television camera or podcast microphone classroom of, of students, or do you prefer the one-to-one -one with the door shut, really unpacking life with one human being? Uh, I prefer most of all, if I have to make, if I make my ranking list, the one that you didn't mention, me in my blue jeans on the laptop writing something that I feel like is going to make a difference for people. That's number one. But all those other things are... That's what I write about. So if if I hadn't gone and done all those things and I wasn't doing all those things other hours of the week, I wouldn't have much to say. Well, you got a lot to say. And one of the places where I first met you was through our friend Ted. Uh, okay. Was it, about, yeah. was it about nine years ago you delivered a TED talk? Uh-huh. Yep. That's right. Mm -hmm. I haven't looked at it super recently, but last time I looked, it had more than 10 million downloads. So apparently I was not the only one to be moved by it. What do you think it was about that talk that gathered so much attention? Well, the name of the talk was Why 30 is Not the New 20. And so I think what gathered a lot of attention is that it went against a lot of what young people were hearing about what's what's the point of the 20s. And a lot of people were hearing 30 is the new 20. And, you know, your 20s are just for fun and games. It doesn't really matter what you do. Nothing real happens until you're 30. You could just start then and everything's going to work out. The first book that I wrote called The Defining Decade was about a different point of view, that 30 is not the new 20, that your 20s are really a unique developmental moment. And that if we kind of trivialize them or say, oh, they're not important, that, you know, we're really not taking a, a big swath of the population seriously. And, you know, it's a very difficult, but also very important time. When do you think, because I, I do want to talk about that book a little bit. I think it's incredibly relevant when you wrote it and more relevant even right now. When do you think we stop taking our 20s as seriously as uh, as we once did? I think demographic changes kind of led to that. So I won't bore you with the whole spiel, but in a nutshell, you know, the quote adult milestones of marriage, you know, partnership, job, houses, kids, all that, the average age of all those things has crept upward. And so 50 years ago, which was before my time, but still 50 years ago, the average age of marriage was 21. And so now the average age of marriage is 28. First child, even later, of course, houses, careers are coming together later for demographic, economic, yeah. social forces, lots of reasons. So those adult milestones crept upward. And then I think it took culture a while to figure out, well, what do we do with that? So I think the first idea was, oh, well, the life doesn't, you know, adulthood doesn't really start until late 20s or 30. So I guess all that between time is just like free time. It, it doesn't mean anything. Life hasn't started yet. But what I really sort of discovered through working with different ages um, is that the real beauty of the fact that adult milestones have crept upward is that if you, you know, take your 20s seriously, you can get in front of life's biggest decisions and you can enter into those more thoughtfully, more intentionally more purposefully than maybe you could have 50 years ago. And so that's the real opportunity. But if we just think of the 20s as the time doesn't count, this isn't real, nothing that I'm doing really matters, the, the real stuff starts later, then you miss that opportunity to get in front 
of what's really just right around the corner. You've used a stat in the past where something like 80% of defining moments in your life take place by the time you flip into your 36 year. Yep. Yep. So a lot of really important stuff takes place in the first three and a half decades. Just talk about that stat and what, what does it mean for our young people? Yeah, so it's a cool study. It was out of uh, Boston University and University of Michigan, and some researchers looked at the life stories of you know successful people. And what they found was that, like you said, about eighty percent of life's most defining moments um, happened by age thirty-five. So that means the jobs that mattered, the people that mattered, moving to your place, finding your place, meeting your friends, developing your talents. That a lot of those things happened by the time you were into your 30s. Right. The other cool part of that study that I really like is that when they looked at the life stories and they asked people about them, they said that they didn't realize at the time how significant the choices and the moves and the jobs and the relationships, like they didn't see it at the time that they were really defining what was coming through their actions. And so I think that's the other side of it. There's a lot of what's happening is very important but we don't always see it or know it. Um, it. They're not necessarily big moves, but they're still important choices. Well, you're, you're visiting with one guy right now who's raising four kids. The oldest is 17. So he's he's tiptoeing toward his 20s. Right. You're on the, the air with a whole bunch of folks who love, they're raising, they got a grandbaby who might be stepping toward their 20s or they're in the in the middle of it. What would you say to folks who they recognize the 20s matter? They recognize these early years are incredibly important, but maybe the person they care for doesn't recognize it as much. Right. Of course, they could uh, read my book. So, <laughs> right. um, I mean, I really wrote The Defining Decade for 20-somethings. And what's right. interesting when I was, the book was being kind of sold to publishers. Some publishers said, well, I'll buy it, but I'll buy it if you'll write it for the, the parents. And because they're the ones who are worried, they're the ones with the deep pockets, right. write it for them. And I said, forget it. That goes against the very message, which is this, these are the years when you kind of have to figure out how do I take a hold of my own life and realize this is mine and the time is passing and what do I want to do about it? So um, I stuck to my guns and said, I'm going to write directly. Plus that's, that's who I work with. I don't even think I would know how to write a book for the parents, but I stuck to my population, which are 20 somethings themselves. I wrote the book for them and it's been very popular. And I think a lot of, you know, and I've received many emails over the years where people say, my mom gave me this for Christmas. <laughs> I didn't want to read it, but then I started and it, I, you know, it was great or it wasn't as bad as I thought, or it really had an impact on me. So yeah, I think the information has to come from somewhere. If you can find it somewhere else besides my book, great. But it is an age as you're experiencing where separation is normal. So it's normal for young adults to be like, well, I don't really want to hear what you have to say, mom or dad, but they might listen to what a, a quote disinterested third party has to say, but someone who's kind of been in that space for, you know, I've been working with 20 somethings now for 20 years. The pain and the hope and the dreams and the challenges that these young people face, has it changed much in 20 years? The biggest change over the last 20 years has been, for sure, technology and social media. But in terms of being human, I mean, I say this a lot at talks or conferences where I'm invited. People are like, explain 20-somethings to us. And I say, well, they're still human. So we've got that. Um, you know, they still need to work and they still want to be loved and they still want friends and to feel like they belong. And yes. that's probably never going to change. Um, I think the big piece of context for people to understand of what makes the 20s so difficult. Let me back up and say that when people ask me, like on a plane, what do you do for a living? Well, I'm a psychologist. And they'll <laughs> say, well, what do you specialize in? And I'll say... 20 somethings. And then they often say, why would you do that? I thought 20 somethings didn't have any problems. And so there's a sense of like, oh, it's just all fun. And what do they, what could they possibly have to worry about? Because nothing's like happening yet. Yes. Um, so the, the flip side of that is what makes the 20 so difficult is that so much is still uncertain. So they don't prop, I mean, statistically speaking, 
They don't know where they're going to live in five years. They don't know where they're going to work in five years. They don't know who they're going to be in five years. They don't know if they're going to be loved in five years. They don't know where their friends are going to be in two years, that there's just a lot of uncertainty. And the brain really doesn't like that. I think we all got a taste of that during the pandemic. Um, and I think everybody got a taste for a minute of what it's like to be a 20 something where suddenly your life is, gosh, I don't know, is anything going to be what I thought two years from now? So in terms of context, that's what makes your 20s so difficult is that all the things that make us feel happy and healthy and kind of emotionally stable, right. most people don't have those things yet. They're coming. You have to work toward them in your 20s. Um, but what makes it hard is just all those things being uncertain at the same time. Mm. Well, there's two things from your book that I, I, well, many more than two, but two in front of me right now, as I look down at this piece of paper, one is a quote and another is a cool idea that has changed my life. So the quote is this forward thinking doesn't just come with age. It comes with practice and experience. So for those of us in our 20s or those of us on the backside of our 70s, tell me what that means. Forward thinking doesn't just come with age. It comes with practice and experience. Forward thinking is really, you know, I'm using that term in more than one way, but at the place you're referencing, I'm really talking about thinking about the future or planning ahead or imagining that like, gosh, am I ever really going to be 30? That's so <laughs> old. Um, or how could I ever think about myself as a 30 something or 40 something? So that's, that's a new skill for a young adult brain. I mean, people aren't used to thinking about themselves in sort of these big, long chunks. So it's really something, it is something we get better at as we get older, but one reason we get better at it is because we practice it because we start to say, let me imagine myself one year from now or two or three years from now. It doesn't mean it always has to be a plan. Maybe it's a dream. I mean, I, I asked my clients, what about having a dream of what if your life worked out well, what would that look like? So it doesn't have to be a plan. It can be a dream. There's a quote in there. I think it's Napoleon Hiltz in the book where it says something like a goal is a dream on a deadline. And so I think sometimes helping Yes. Young adults have dreams and hopes. Like I'm not trying to give you a plan. Um, I'm trying to help you have dreams and hopes and a, a vision, a good, a positive vision for yourself. And then once that happens, suddenly turns out there are goals. There are things that you need to yeah. do to get there. Um, but that really should be driven by their dream, not, not my agenda. I think that the idea of goals and dreams and agency to move forward toward them is really important, in particular when we're all reading the same headlines and listening to the same news stories and hearing about the same wars and challenges we face societally. How do you move someone who might be feeling just grounded in despair and hopelessness into a place where they they cast that vision, they have that dream, they have a plan, and they start they start moving forward toward it? Yeah, well, it's actually, you know, what I just said of one of the, I won't call it thinking errors, because it's not an error. It's just a, a tendency that humans have, especially in uncertain situations. Uh, we all tend to fall into what's called catastrophic thinking. So young adults do this a lot. What if this? What if that? What if whatever? It's always what if the bad. So what if my life doesn't work out? What if no one ever loves me? What if I'm not successful? So they spend a lot of time hanging out there in their brain, which is not, <laughs> not that helpful. Um, so I often have them do kind of what's the, the best possible life. Well, what if it goes well? Like, what would that be? Just have you ever thought about that before? And usually they're, you know, kind of barely dare to dream of, oh, what if I, I don't want to say it out loud. Um, so I try to help people imagine what if your life goes well, and you get to decide what that means. What would that mean to you? And it's normal that for many young adults, they have never really articulated that or thought about that or said it out loud or written it down. And I tell them, you can revise it. You can change this. But let's just start playing with this idea. What if your life goes well? What would that look like? Just to counter some of that, the doom and gloom, you know, the planet. You know, I had a I was giving a talk a couple of months ago and um, somebody in the front row said, well, why should we plan for the future when the, the planet's going to, you know, die tomorrow? And I said, well, <laughs> I don't think we know that. And if it doesn't, you're going to be in a bad way, you know, that I think we need to plan for the future that we want and that we hope for and, you know, work toward that as well. But 
you've got to counter, I think, a lot of what they're hearing, which is all doom and gloom. Hey, you know what? That's part of what the work we're doing around here. We're trying to uh, subtly quiet that signal that is all doom and gloom and remind people of what remains possible. Nice. Great. Really. So uh, one of the ways we move forward collectively is through weak ties. Not weak ties, E-E, but W-E-A-K. Tell me what weak ties are and why they matter, not only to 20-something-year-olds, but to the rest of us. The concept of weak ties is from a famous paper, Mark Granovitter at Stanford. He did this probably 40 years ago now. Um, the title of the paper was called The Strength of Weak Ties, yeah. and it was really about the power of social networks. So this was, you know, 40 years before, you know, Mark Zuckerberg, it was where he is now. So this was really one of the first studies that looked at social networks. And it's obviously not online at this point. No. But what we, he was interested in is how the people in our networks help us with social mobility or help us help move us up and around. Um, so what he found is an interesting stat to think about the next time you're looking for something new in your life was that he looked at a group of blue collar workers outside of Boston and they had just changed jobs. And what he found was that 75% of them found the new job or got the lead for the new job from what are called weak ties. And those are people that they just see rarely or occasionally. These aren't best friends. These aren't family members or people pretty far out in their social networks. So he thought, well, that's interesting and tried to unpack why that was and why it turns out to be true um, is that people further out in our social networks, they know things we don't know. They know people we don't know. They have ideas we don't have. They have perspectives we don't have. So usually if we need a new job, a new friend, a new date, a new apartment, a new idea or perspective, it's not going to come from your best friend or your family member because they're already, you've already know what they are thinking. You've heard it. It may be similar to you, but people sort of outside the, the inner circle, the weak ties are really where new things come from. Um, so this is really important for young adults because I've been doing this for 20 years. I can't think, think of a single 20 something in all the years I've been doing this. I'm sure they're out there, but I've never personally met any who got a job by applying online, like through monster.com or, you know, through blindly sending a resume somewhere to no, to nobody in particular that almost always the first job friend of a friend the new it's it's friend of a friend of a friend or even you know friend of a neighbor of a yeah, that's right you know someone they met once and so i think that's really important for young people to understand that it's not nepotism it's not i'm getting something i don't deserve because from someone close to me it's really I'm just getting some information or an opportunity from someone quite distant from me. And it's really up to me to sort of do something with that. Mm. We're going to shift away from this topic in a moment because sure. I, I also want to unpack super normal. Okay. But one of the little exercises I always take my boys through is the, the, the power of compound interest starting young in life. Yeah. And yeah. If you don't start saving until you're 35 or 40 or 50 or 60, whenever that is, and you're going to make more then you will never catch up. And so I always show them the graphic. If you save from 20 to 35, you will have far more by retirement than if you save from 30 all the way to 65, you'll never right. catch up. Mm -hmm. Your book very clearly reminds us at a young age of the power of beginning now. Yeah, so absolutely. I, I just mm -hmm. thank you for that. And it's it's uh, it's not arrogantly shared. It's not looking downhill. Uh, I wish I had known. It's just meeting people where they are through the lessons you learned one-on-one. So I, very powerful. And speaking of the lessons you learned one-on-one, you introduced me to a woman named Helen in your mm -hmm. most recent book. Very ordinary woman, it seems. So if you don't mind, as we shift gears from 20-somethings to now Helen, how did she end up in the book Supernormal? Yeah, so Supernormal um, is a very different book um, from The Defining Decade, even though they're adjacent, and we could talk about that in a minute if you like. But um, Supernormal, the, the subtitle is um, The Secret World of the Family Hero, and it's about, you know, 
that kid in those families, you may identify with this out there or know someone where it's, you know, that, that one kid in the family or the two kids in the family who seem to really rise above their circumstances. So they grow up with some sort of early adversity. We can talk about how common those are and they manage to kind of fall up or, or beat expectations in terms of how they do in life. I opened the book with a woman that I call Helen and Helen remember her first session because she sat down in my office and she was explaining how she was driving there in her car and got a flat tire and pulled over on the side of the road and pulled up her phone, found a bus, hopped on a bus, got near to my office, ran the rest of the way and like still was sitting in her seat on time, you know, hands folded, ready to <laughs> have the session. <laughs> And I said to her, I said, wow, you, you sound like a superhero. I mean, I could just imagine her dashing through the streets and, you know, jumping over car filled intersections to get to where she was going on time. And she basically said, you don't know the half of it and explained her story of growing up with a fair bit of adversity. Her father was an alcoholic. He'd lost his job. He killed himself. His The mother was sort of left trying to pick up the pieces, but struggling herself. And Helen was really the strong one in the family. So she was sort of the one was left on her own to figure out how to get to college, to get through college, to come back, to look after the mom, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, over the years of working with young adults, I've met a lot of sort of the strong ones in the family. And I think oftentimes they feel like I'm alone, I'm different, I'm isolated, I'm not like the other people that at my workplace, or I'm not like the other people at my college. Little did they know I had person after person after person like that in my office all week long. And I felt like y'all need to get to know each other. And the way I try to do that is through books is to bring those stories out from behind closed doors and say, you know, I think, well, I know, um, early adversity is more common than people realize and that it could really be something that unites us rather than divides us in terms of I've had it hard or you haven't or I've had this adversity but you've had that adversity I think that's really a common story in terms of growing up with hardship and wanting to figure out as an adult how to have it better you know as a as an adult than maybe you had it as a kid I love being punctual and I love people <laughs> So I would have been running alongside of Helen yes. on time to your couch, legs crossed. Here we go. Right. But I was three minutes late for you today. And I don't, I don't know that. So why, why should be the question. O'Leary, why did you not plan? Here's why. I spoke downtown today to an organization. And then afterwards, there was a book signing. And what we thought would be 40 or 50 people ended up being far longer. And Great. That's, that singing, is a good problem. Yes, but I mean, here, but turning it back to you, what almost every conversation began with was John, first of all, thank you for sharing. I've got a story. It's nothing like yours. And then right, they, would right. and they would talk about the, the you, you know, you mentioned when Helen, Helen lost her brother when he, when he drowned in the pool. And right. Thank you. Yeah, I love that out. Yep. And, mm -hmm. and he's an addict and mom's unable to, to right. that's one person next to Helen's the next person next to hers. The third, like right. so we all have these profound thing. All of us have these things mm -hmm. to go through. You though, have put actually a number on it that it's not just, I think there's a lot of people who struggle. 75% of us have massive chronic challenges we go through leading up into our twenties. Right. That's right. We make it to our second decade. We've already been through the ringer several times, many of us. Right. Would you talk about ACE and talk about some of the challenges that these kids face? And, and for those of us who don't fit in one of these boxes, we also recognize that many of us had a, a difficult day and didn't get invited to the dance and ha had some other challenges. So it, it is 100%, but 75% right. specifically double challenges. ACE stands for Adverse Childhood Experiences. So the top 10 ACEs, I'm going to try to rattle them off, but I'm sure I'll forget one. But it's losing a parent or a sibling through death or divorce. It's growing up with alcoholism in the home or mental illness in the home. Maybe it's a parent, but maybe it's a sibling. It's growing up with emotional, physical, or sexual abuse. It's bullying. It's having a parent in jail um, or uh, living with domestic violence. Oh, I did it. There's 10. So those are the 10 most common, but you're a perfect example of someone who your adversity isn't in that list. So the, the ACEs really just cover the 10 most common. 
Um, but there are, of course, many more. But what we know from the ACEs is that 75% of kids, teens, young adults grow up with it, at least one of those. Right. If you grow up, and because one can sometimes lead to another yes. and another, that so I think it's 75% of those um, are probably exposed to at least one more. 50% are exposed to at least three more. So like with Helen, her brother died in a tragic accident. Her dad became an alcoholic. He killed himself. The mom was struggling financially. So sometimes one thing leads to another and another. So, you know, sometimes I think people want to rank adversities. Like you said, people will say, oh, my story is not as bad as yours. But, you know, there's no hierarchy of trauma. It's really difficult to compare one person's life and hardship and support system with another person. So, you know, adversity is adversity, at least for the brain. And that really, I think just understanding that most of us grow up with some significant struggles in our lives and we're, you know, out there trying to figure out, well, how do I make it better than it was before? That that's something that can really bring people together rather than making them feel abnormal or damaged or different. And that, that's really where, you know, I have a bit of a problem with my own profession, which is why I write books is people come into my office and they whisper about these things behind closed doors. Nobody else knows this. You're the only first person to hear this. And the next thing I'm trying to do is say, well, who else can know this? Um, right. Who else can you talk to? Because bringing it to my door, I hope to be helpful, but it also makes it in a way seem like a secret or like it's abnormal when really, unfortunately, it's quite common for people to grow up with a lot of struggles. So I want to first talk about the, the difficulties that grow out of these, these chronic stressors, mm -hmm. and then maybe talk about some of the actual benefits, believe it or not, that might grow out of these things. So beginning with the stress first, what, what's the problem with chronic stress? What's the problem with the difficulties we endure, whether it's as adults later on in life or right. as yeah. what we're talking about here as kids? What, what's the problem with that? This is why there's no hierarchy of trauma that your brain doesn't differentiate between you running from a bear or running to your room because an alcohol parent is screaming. The brain just perceives that as stress, as I'm in danger, something bad is happening or is about to happen. I'm stressed. And so that's a, you know, our brains and our bodies kind of go into fight or flight, go into overdrive which is the appropriate response to have. The problem with the 10 ACEs that I mentioned is that most of them are what are called cumulative adversities or chronic adversities. I mean, if you have a mentally ill sibling, they're not mentally ill for one day. It's every day, every week, every year. And that's a lot of stress to grow up next to. So uh, growing up with ACEs, uh, people's bodies are in a chronic state of sort of stress and arousal. And I think we all know by now that over time that creates a lot of wear and tear on the body and the brain. And so now we know that that puts you at multiple times more risk for mental health and physical health problems when you're older, not because you're defective, but because of the wear and the tear on your body and your brain. Um, so that people know that more than they used to, which I think is good. On the flip side, I think people hear that research and they go, oh no, I'm, I'm done. You know, great. Uh, you know, I knew it. My childhood ruined me and there's nothing I can do. And now I'm going to be sick or I'm going to be mentally ill or I'm going to die sooner than other people. And so I think we have to be careful with that message of that th those are the risks, right? but that we also in adulthood, um, especially, I mean, that's the space where I work is sort of the, the years where people claim their own lives and figure out well, what do I want my adulthood to look like? And that when we end the chronic stress, when we create healthy situations, healthy relationships, healthy lives for ourselves, and we, we turn down that chronic stress, we roll back the wear and tear. And mm. so it doesn't have to be that what happened, you know, when we were kids decides, um, you know, how the rest of our lives go, but it's really important for people to figure out how to have kind of what they didn't have, which is often sort of safety in adulthood. Mm. Uh, one of the guys who I love reading is a fellow named Henry Nowen, you may have read, but Nowen wrote a book a long time ago called The Wounded Healer. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's been a long, been a while, but yes. It has been a minute, so uh, decades ago, but it, there's just something redemptive about a person who's been through a struggle, who is able to at some point reckon with it and then decide how to 
how to turn that struggle into healing for others. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, so, and if your stat is right, 75% of us have indeed been through the struggle and the other 25% went through something else. Right. So now it's, hey, one happy family that's figured this out. What are the folks who are going through that struggle well and healing and ultimately looking backwards saying, take my hand, let's do this together. What have they figured out that the rest of us can learn from? A couple of things. One is that because I, I, you know, many people who grew up with struggle do go on to be helpers somehow, but you don't have to be a psychologist to be a helper. You don't have to be a, you know, a social worker. I mean, there are a lot of ways to help people. And so I do think many people find a way to say, I'm going to take what I learned or the strengths that I have because of it. And I'm going to help people the way I wish I had been helped. Um, But I think even more important than that is recognizing that most of the ACEs that I mentioned are within the context of relationships, um, that statistically speaking, home is the most dangerous place in America uh, for children. So they're more likely to be harmed in the context of their relationships than anywhere else. But in adulthood, to have relationships that you feel like are happy and healthy, that that's not just redemptive, but also healing, that that's what calms down the brain and the body and allows us to you know, have a very different adulthood than our childhood. I think what we don't hear enough about, you know, we hear a lot about the cycle of this and the cycle of that. And yes. actually, one thing I learned doing research for Supernormal is that a lot of that research is pretty shoddy. Um, it's based on small samples, clinical samples. It's not what they're not, who they're not hearing from are all the people who went out there and did it differently, who said, I saw this and therefore I'm going to do that. And I think we need to hear more about that, that it's absolutely possible to do it differently as an adult. There's a really great, I guess, anecdote would be the word that a minister shared with me of two brothers being in a minister's office. They're adults and they were both sons of uh, an abusive alcoholic. And one of the sons was also an abusive alcoholic and the other was a sober man and a you know great upstanding father and husband and the minister asked the brothers you know how do you think you turned out how you did and hmm. they both said you know given how we grew up how could it be any different and just showing that one brother saw it as well I, you know history has to repeat itself what else can i do and the other saw it as history can absolutely not repeat itself. That's not an option for me. And so the mystery of life is why one brother does one thing and the other brother goes the other way. But I think we don't hear enough about that brother who says, I'm going to do it differently. Some of the best partners, parents, people that I've met, you know, grew up with some really hard times. And so they're extremely intentional and extremely determined um, about being good people and good partners and good parents in adulthood. And they're doing a beautiful job of it. How could they not look, look who raised them? You know, I, and I think that goes back to what you talk about with the power of relationships, that unfortunately, some of those relationships are going to be the ones that burn you, but the other relationships are going to be the one that, that helps save you, help move you mm-hmm. forward. Coaches, pastors, rabbis, friends, a teacher, yeah, One yeah. coming over just occasionally checking on you and saying, Hey, you look great today. And just encouraging. Why is it? And I could take a bunch of guesses, but you're the expert. Why is it that relationships are so important in enduring hardship and ultimately having a successful life? I think it's just because we're, you know, evolutionarily inherently social. I mean, when we're born, the, 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 there's no way to survive without attaching ourselves to somebody, you know, mom, dad, whoever, I mean, that there's no other way a baby can survive without, you know, the help of others. And so, you know, as we get older, we can pull away from that some, but I think we forget sometimes how really dependent we are on that for our health and our happiness. And lots and lots of studies have shown, I won't bore you with the details, that um, less predictive of how much um, adversity affects you less predictive is quote how bad the adversity was more predictive is how alone did you feel or was there someone there to help you and one thing I try to do with my clients is I try to help them remember and give space in their brain to the, the the good people who were there who helped them and maybe they couldn't save them and maybe they couldn't adopt them and maybe they couldn't fix everything but they did the little things that over time added up. And so mm. just like there's cumulative stress, 
um, there's also cumulative healing. And so oftentimes it was this friend who really supported me for a year or two here, or that teacher, like you said, who checked on me two or three times, but I never forgot it, is yeah. helping people let that add up in their brains and in their memories. And maybe that means putting out pictures or reminders or sending a note or an email of I never forgot, you know, what you did for me. That That's part of the healing process too, because it's um, sometimes we have to make the space to remember the good things um, and the good people who were there because our brain is so busy being worried about the bad things. I'll come back to that in a moment. But before we do, I've had another guest on named, named Steve Pemberton who grew up in the foster care system and saw the darkest side of that system and dealt with abuse and neglect and everything else bad. And today he's an incredible physician, incredible husband, incredible father. So I asked him why. And it was one teacher who just would occasionally reach out. And that's where he saw this bright lighthouse is what mm -hmm. he said, just one lighthouse and it's enough. And so for uh, our listeners, I just think it's important. You recognize the importance of your life and the life of someone else. It's a really big deal. For those of us, though, who feel like we need a lighthouse right now, whether our listeners 20 to 29, or maybe they're, they're a little bit older, uh, what's the encouragement for them? They're struggling right now. They're in a dark place, whether it's something they're currently going through or a memory of yesterday. What, what mm -hmm. advice would you give them? To connect somehow, even if it's connecting with a past memory, if I'm going to write that note, I'm going to send that letter, I'm going to remember something good that someone did for me two years ago or 15 years ago, or whether it's I'm going to call someone and say, let's get together, let's hang out. You know, maybe you tell them what's going on, or maybe you just benefit from, you know, being with somebody who cares or, you know, whose who's presence makes you feel good. So, I mean, the advice is always to connect, to connect with, you know, the good people out there it makes me think of uh, Mr. Rogers. I won't get the quote right, but he said something about, you know, always find the helpers that even yes. in the worst situations, there are always helpers and to find those people. And, you know, remember that cumulatively the good adds up just in the way that, that the aces can add up. I love that quote. I love that man. I uh, appreciate you sharing all of this. I told you before we recorded, I have 74 questions for you. <laughs> so we now have what six i'm bad at math 64 to go so here we go unfortunately we'll have to page through the rest of them get into a couple quotes and then finish strong with a live inspired seven so i wrote down probably 11 different quotes that i really like from you but one of them is this our brains are wired to keep us alive not happy <laughs> talk about that you know, we've got to live day to day. So happiness is a bonus. Um, and so our brains are going to focus on the negative. They're going to worry about the negative. They're going to remember the negative. That's normal. Doesn't mean there's anything wrong with you. Um, and so part of our task is to offset that by, like I said, remembering the good, noticing the good, being the good, yeah. um, and making space for that in our brains, because that's not what our brain is probably naturally going to do. Although there are some people out there who just sort of always seem to see the good that statistically, that's the minority. Next quote, resilience, which is really the heart of your work, resilience is less about who you are, and much more about what you do. I mean, that makes me think of a Bessel van der cult quote that I'll get wrong, but it's, it's something about, it's less about what happened to you and more about what did you do to survive? So what did people do? And I think oftentimes I see people in my office and they don't give themselves credit for how they got to where they are. I mean, they just hadn't, haven't been able to slow down and think about it, or people don't know their story. So they haven't had to articulate it. Nobody said, how did you do that? How did you get here? You're, you sound like a superhero. And so oftentimes that's where my work comes in is helping people articulate, not just what happened, because that's important, but what they did about it and what yeah. they did in response and, and who helped them along the way. I think articulating those things and holding on to that and creating that space in your brain is really important for moving ahead. My friend, and this is the final question before our Live Inspired 7. In the long run, you write, what goes right matters more than what goes wrong. Yeah, I said the cumulative stress adds up when you're younger. It does, but over the long haul, the sort of the long arc of life in the, in the long run, what goes right matters more than what goes wrong. That 
the good things, the good people, the good decisions, the good days, that those end up having a bigger effect on if we look at really long-term developmental research, people in the middle and the ends of their lives are much more aware and feel the weight of what went right rather than what went wrong. I think when you're young, it's, you know, we focus a lot on what went wrong because not maybe not enough has gone right yet. Well, the public service announcement before we step into the final seven questions is what you focus on grows. And uh, I just encourage our right. listeners mm -hmm. to grab a little journal tonight and track the good because it was everywhere today. And if it worked for you tonight, try it again tomorrow. So as we go into the, the final seven questions with Dr. Meg J, first question is for, a, I'm sure, a researcher and a, a leader who's read quite a bit. This one might be hard, but what's been the most impactful or inspirational book that you've ever read? Oh, you know, it's going to surprise you, actually, although I did say I was a religion minor. So um, if I was stranded on a deserted island for the rest of my life with one book, um, it would be the Tao Te Ching. Um, it is a small, even the pocket version would be the one I would choose. It's a tiny little book, but it has a lot of wisdom in it. And a lot of that wisdom is about not resisting the way that the way that things are and understanding, learning the lessons and the way that things are. And so um, it's a small book with a lot of wisdom. I usually have students when I'm teaching, I usually have them read it. And it's, it's great for young adults, especially. What's one positive characteristic? that you had, you possessed when you were growing up in South Carolina, that you wish you exhibited as brilliantly today? Hmm, that's a tough one. <laughs> well, I used to be a great little ballet dancer. I don't do much of that anymore. That may not be what you were going for, but that was that's what comes to mind. I think with the other stuff, I've tried to become more of the good, but that's something good I used to do that I don't do anymore. Meg, if your uh, ballerina shoes are on and your house catches fire, all living things are out, but you have an opportunity of running in and grabbing one item, just one thing, what would you come running back outside with? What came to my mind is actually on my finger. My wedding ring is my grandmother's wedding ring. Um, so I've already got it. Um, I can't think of any other material object that's not replaceable. So the ring is on and uh, you're moving forward into life with that. If you could sit on a bench on a gorgeous day and have a long conversation with anyone living or deceased, who do you want next to you? Honestly, my grandmother who's passed away, I would want her oh on the bench. And, you know, maybe one of my old teachers that I still think about. So it's really just people who've made a difference for me who, you know, I wish I could still see every day or I wish we're still living. Mm. What's the best advice your grandmother or that teacher or Freud or anybody else that ever influenced <laughs> your life ever gave you. So the best advice you've ever received is? The best advice I've ever received, I mean, is probably not something that would surprise you, is that my life is what I make of it. And I think especially in adulthood, I think when you're younger, that's tricky, you know, that it's hard to feel like you're in charge of your own destiny and your own life. And we do, we find ways when you're younger to feel, to figure out like, how can I take ownership of what little piece that I can? But I think realizing that as soon as possible in adulthood, that, you know, my life is really mine to win or lose. And that it, it's what I make of it is something that I, you know, in ways big and small that goes for my role as a parent, as a professional, as a partner, everything that what I have is, is what I have created. What would you advise to your 20 year old self? So if you could go back in time, just a couple of years and whisper a little uh, encouragement or advice to your 20 year old self. It, you... It's that it would be to understand that a bit sooner um, than maybe I did to realize that, you know, the, the, the baton really had been handed to me and that only I could run with it. Dr. Meg J, it has been said that all great people can have their lives summed up in one sentence. <laughs> How would you like yours to read? Oh my gosh. I mean, I think it would be the, the, the quote, um, education is an intervention. I think I'm really about helping people. And usually I try to do that, not by, you know, deciding what their lives should be about, but really by saying, I have some information, um, let me give it to you and then do with that what you will. Yeah. 
Meg, thank you for your time and your words and your work and your impact. It, it uh, certainly has been profound. Thank you, John, and uh, you as well. Thank you so much for having me on the show. My friends, that is Dr. Meg J. My name is John O'Leary, and today is your day. What a gift. Live inspired. Well, my friends, I hope you enjoyed today's conversation as much as I enjoyed bringing it to you. I'm going to repeat a quote that Meg shared that I underlined. I highlighted, I started in my notes, and here it is for you and I to hear it one more time. There is no hierarchy of trauma. It's difficult to compare one person's life, their hardships and support system with another's. Yeah, I know. Sometimes in life we experience trauma with a little T or trauma with a big capital T. And yet regardless of which trauma we experience, we can't compare the challenges we face or the struggles we overcame with others. There is no winner. There's no loser. Instead, what we can do is to be a lighthouse for others. We can use our scars, our brokenness, our struggles for good. That's the call, to use it for good. My friends, during a season of pain and discomfort, the headwinds are strong. But offering others some small gestures of kindness, you can remind them and yourselves that the foundation is firm and that the best days do indeed remain ahead. Now, listen. Listen, don't just take my word for it. I mentioned our friend Steve Pemberton in today's conversation. Never acknowledged by his father and abandoned by his mother at age three, Steve spent his childhood being shuffled through the foster care system where he was abused, he was neglected, he was forgotten. To hear the small gestures, though, of kindness from ordinary people that helped Steve forge a new path that led to a personal and professional successful story, it's one of the most remarkable stories of overcoming we've ever shared on this podcast. I loved it. I love him. And so will you. Where can you learn more about it? Well, my friends, I'm glad you asked. Number one, subscribe for free to the Live Inspired Podcast. Anywhere you pull down your podcast, make sure that you are subscribed to ours. And then secondly, let your fingers do the walk and cruise on over to episode 348, that one with my buddy Steve Pemberton. If you are struggling at all tracking down episode 348, let me help you out. Just cruise on over then to johnolearyinspires.com forward slash podcast. So one more time, johnolearyinspires.com forward slash podcast, and you will find right there for you episode 348. Brothers and sisters, friends and family, I want to thank you for being part of the Live Inspired podcast community. I want to remind you, Lighthouses, that the foundation is firm. The storms may be real, yes, indeed, but the best is yet to come. So for this time and until next time, my name, yeah, it's John O'Leary, and today is your day. What a gift. Live Inspired. You know that Keeley Companies is all about fostering the world-class culture through their incredible cultural pillars. Well, it was time to add a seventh cultural pillar, Keeley Green. Guided by the mission to raise the sustainability standards by which they design, build, operate, and live, Keeley Green is dedicated to using a holistic approach to leave a positive impact on our environment, create a future that is sustainable for generations to come. In the words of Rusty Keeley, we are just getting started. You can learn more about that just getting started mentality and all the work they do by visiting my friends at Keeley Companies online at keeleycompanies.com.